Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kind of said, why don't we do it a bit like we do it in weapons? And, you know, maybe we can just drop some bombs into a mountain and generate energy. The history of fusion is littered with both triumph and humiliation. Hello, Dallas here. Welcome once again to another episode of Patented. Thank you very much for your company. Your friendly neighbourhood podcast, all about the history of inventions brought to you from History Hit. Now, there's a few words that I've had to say a lot in my career, talking about science and technology and such, which keep coming up, which I always dread because I find them really, really difficult to say. One of them is astronomy or astronomer, because I'm always terrified I'm going to say astrology or astrologer and get lynched by the astronomy community. Obviously, completely different meaning, but the words themselves sound very similar. The other one, goodness me, in innovative, innovative, in, in, innovative. I find it really hard to say. I can say innovation, but innovative, I find really, is that how I say it? I find it really, really difficult to say, which is unfortunate because obviously... It's a word I have to say a lot. The other one, final one, is nuclear. Nuke, nuclear, as opposed to nuclear. But I always dread it because I know I'm going to get it wrong. In my mind, I can see it coming up. Here comes the word, here comes the word. Ah! And then I, uh, I, I muck it up. Uh, it's nuclear. And that's the subject of today's episode. Not nuclear fission, as in the power that powers nuclear power stations, but nuclear fusion which is the power source of the sun and the stars. Unlike the type of nuclear power we use now, it doesn't create any radioactive waste. So it's potentially an inexhaustible supply of clean energy. The big joke, of course, though, is nuclear fusion is always 30 years away wherever you are. The big problem that we have is that we haven't quite figured it out yet. We understand the science behind it, we understand the physics, but as an engineering challenge, it still eludes us. We still have to put more energy in than we get energy out, and there is the problem. I've been lucky enough to make a couple of programs about nuclear fusion over the years. I was at JET, the Joint European Taurus, which is at Cullum in Oxfordshire, which is a plasma fusion machine. And every so often now they have 
mini breakthroughs. There's that kind of fusion, plasma fusion. There's also laser fusion, which is the other kind. So there's this battle between them, this race, if you like, between plasma and laser. Every so often we get these little breakthroughs, but it's not quite there yet. Anyway, this is the history of our attempts to make nuclear fusion a reality. The history of an invention that doesn't quite exist yet. My guest today is Arthur Turrell, author of The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. Arthur, listen, thanks very much for joining us on the show. It's lovely to have you with us. Hey, fusion is one of these subjects that we could just bang on and on about. There's lots to talk about. The future of fusion, is it going to work? When's it going to happen? All these kinds of things. But I'm under strict instructions to just stick to the history. Otherwise, we'll be here for hours and hours and hours. What do you think? So I agree. There's so much we could talk about when it comes to nuclear fusion, and so much of it is exciting. Um, but if you say we need to stick to the history, let's stick to the history as much as we can. Uh, yeah, we may stray. We may kind of go off on tangents. But where do we start? What is it? I mean, OK, when we hear people, the word nuclear, we always think of power and bombs, but that's kind of not what we're talking about here. So take us through what we mean by nuclear fusion. Yeah, so nuclear fusion is the most prevalent energy source in the entire universe. It's the reaction that powers stars, including our nearest and dearest star, the Sun. It's a reaction that was around in the Big Bang. And it's really exciting because fusion reactions, nuclear fusion reactions, take the nuclei of atoms, smash them together and forge new atoms. What you'll also get out is some energy as well. And even though nuclear fusion is really exciting in its own right, just as a natural phenomenon, because it you know lights up the universe, uh, whether that be in the day from the sun or at night through stars, it's also exciting because it releases this energy, and you know any rich energy source that we can tap into can help on Earth, and we only need to look at this winter to see how important that is. Just tell us the difference between fission and fusion. So fusion is what we've been talking about, but fission, which is the one that we runs, we get energy from nuclear power stations and build atomic nuclear weapons with. What's the difference? Right. Yeah, it's a really important distinction. So there are these two kind of nuclear reactions, and they're both called nuclear because they happen to the part right at the centre of an atom. And that's also what the difference is between them as well. So fission is where you have typically a bigger atom, a really big nucleus, that's just very slightly unstable, and you split it apart. Whereas in nuclear fusion, you have some very light atoms typically, and you put them together. And in both cases, they can release energy, which seems a bit surprising because you're kind of doing the opposite things. And the reason they both release energy is because in both cases, the thing that you end up with is a bit more stable than the things you started with. When you said it was at the Big Bang, yeah. when, when was the first kind of fusion reaction? When are we talking about? probably on the order of seconds after the Big Bang, because, you know, at the start, it was just too hot. Everything had too much energy. But eventually, nuclei smashed into each other with the right energy for these fusion reactions to happen. And from the most simple element, hydrogen, you started getting heavier, bigger 
elements created. So helium first, and then so on and so forth down the periodic table. And a lot of those very light elements were created in the Big Bang. But then bigger elements like oxygen and carbon, the things that underpin much of life on Earth are created mostly in stars. Well, so let's let's start with stars. Okay, so the sun is a big fusion react reaction. Before we even knew, like, how did we how did we know? Like, I know hundreds, thousands of years ago, they kind of thought the sun must be made of coal or something. When did we discover that? Actually, hang on, it's not made of coal because, for obvious reasons, there's something else going on here. Where, when was that discovery made, and who by? So it's a really interesting thing that you should mention that people thought it was made out of coal because it, it didn't make any sense. If you've ever used a coal fire, you know you have to keep topping it up all the time, right? Because actually coal doesn't contain that much energy. It, it contains a lot for a, for a kind of fuel that you burn. But people kind of knew that the sun had been around for a long time. Geologists certainly knew this. And they couldn't reconcile the idea that it was made out of coal or something because it seemed like it should have burnt out ages ago. So people had an inkling that there was something else going on. And a couple of different things were kind of happening at the same time. But one of the, the key players in this was a chap called Arthur Eddington, who is a brilliant physicist. And he had this suspicion that there was some kind of nuclear reaction going on there. And what he said in this famous book in, in 1920 was, a star must be drawing on this vast reservoir of energy that we can't understand how it works. But if, if it is kind of this subatomic energy, this nuclear energy, then it must be everywhere. We must be able to unlock it. We could dream to one day release it and use it for ourselves. And the store would be well nigh inexhaustible if only it could be tapped. Mm. So Eddington was kind of thinking about this already. But at that time, what we hadn't done is discover the actual reaction that was behind it. So the experiments on Earth hadn't quite caught up to this kind of idea that there might be something nuclear happening in the sun. And did, had Eddington done any experiments, or was he just was it just kind of was he just supposing? He looked up at the sun and thought, "Goodness, how did that work?" I think he was taking a bit of a punt, actually, just on the basis of the available evidence. Now, in, by 1920, quite a lot of things about atoms had been discovered, and it was a really fruitful time for this. So the, perhaps the most important thing was, was back in 1909 by Ernest Rutherford, very celebrated experimental physicist, who showed that actually atoms weren't a, a big blob. They were mostly empty space with this bit in the middle where most of the mass was called a nucleus. And it's hard to overstate how much of a revelation that was. So there's a, another physicist called Ernest Mack, after whom the Mack number is named. And he said something that, like, if the reality of atoms is real, then I completely renounce physics. I will hand back my scientific reputation. He was so kind of shocked by this. <laughs> I agree with him. <laughs> so Rutherford's work opened up this line of inquiry. And what happened in the early 1930s is that um, some people in Rutherford's lab started basically just smashing these nuclei together. They worked out if they put lots of energy in, they could overcome this repulsion. And so they built a, a smashing machine. And first of all, they discovered that uh, when they fired a proton, so that's the nucleus of a, of a hydrogen atom, at a lump of lithium, most of the time, nothing happened. Nothing interesting at all. But 10 in every 1 billion, a proton would strike the centre of a lithium nucleus and just split it in two. And this was the first 
Fission. Fission, the splitting, the, the famous splitting of the atom that people maybe... Yeah, exactly. And then it was just a few years later in 1934, where again, Rutherford and a couple of people in his laboratory were carrying on with this kind of smashing on quite rudimentary equipment, actually. And what they were doing was firing a type of special hydrogen, so-called heavy hydrogen. It's called deuterium. It's basically like normal hydrogen. It's just a bit heavier because there's an extra neutral particle in the nucleus. And they were firing that at itself. And what happened, again, was they got something they didn't expect, very rarely, but they got something they didn't expect. They put one unit of energy in and two deuterium atoms. And in a successful reaction, what they found was that they were able to transform that into a heavier hydrogen atom and a proton and release some energy as well. In fact, four units of energy. So they'd put for each successful reaction, one unit of energy in, four units of energy out, and they'd fuse together. They'd created a new atom at the same time. And this was nuclear fusion, and it seemed magical. If it, if it worked, if, if Rutherford sort of made it work, why why is it not working now? If, if we got four units of energy from one unit of energy put in, what's the problem? Yeah, so let's think about that first experiment and, and why it didn't mean that we've got this amazing source of energy. The, the bottom line is that that experiment used way more energy than it produced. So for a successful one, you got four times the energy out than you put in, but most of them weren't successful. In fact, only one in a million of these were successful. In fact, Einstein said something like, you know, the likelihood of transforming matter into energy is like shooting birds in the dark in a country where there are no birds. So it doesn't work. And and the problem again is about these repulsive nuclei, because most of the time they just kind of glance off of each other. They only have a small chance of reacting, even if you put all of this energy in accelerating them to great speed. So you can never make energy that way. But that doesn't mean there isn't a way to do it. So there is a way to do it. Okay, so we're in the 1930s. And then obviously, as we move into the 1940s, into the Second World War, we think about fission again, obviously things like the Manhattan Project, developing nuclear weapons, which needs no introduction. And of course, from that nuclear power, what was going on with fusion at that time when we were doing all these experiments with fission and actually making a, making a go of it for energy and weapons, what was happening with fusion then in the, in the, in the 40s? Did people just sort of forget about it or? So people had started to kind of unlock what particles it might be possible to fuse together to do fusion. And in the 1940s, people started thinking about, you know, what, what kind of conditions or machines would you need to actually do this in a way that got round this particle smashing problem? At this time, when you say particle smashing, at this time in the thesis, were they sort of using a particle accelerator, as we might imagine something like the Large Hadron Collider? Just Yeah, exactly. They were using rudimentary early versions of that. But then as soon as people started realising that, you know, this collision-based method where you accelerate particles was never going to work for energy, they started thinking about, well, what would work? And that's where it gets interesting. So there was a guy who was a member of the Nazi party just before the Second World War called Max Steenbeck. And he was working in a uh, Siemens factory and he knew about this thing called the pinch effect. So I don't know if you've ever seen a lightning conductor. And, you know, what, what happens when lightning hits one of those is that sometimes the, the conductor, the metal gets twisted up. 
And the reason is that if you've got a really large current traveling down, then a magnetic kind of force squishes the conductor inwards and uh, it becomes misshapen. And Steenbeck had this idea, could you use that same kind of pinching effect to create particles that are hot enough and dense enough for these fusion reactions to happen? And he actually built a first kind of a little donut-shaped object to do that. And the write-up of the experiments that Steenbeck did actually made it to the desk of a couple of physicists at Imperial College London. And they were like, you know what, this could be a route to doing nuclear fusion. And they built some prototypes in the basement of Imperial College before it all got classified. And they actually thought that they were going to be able to show that this thing worked. And there are all kinds of reasons why they didn't. They just very momentarily created a very large current, which created a magnetic field that trapped some hot nuclei. And in principle, those nuclei would then smash together. But the problem was that, you know, if you put that much energy into a really small space, nature kind of hates it. And what happens is the thing just becomes really unstable and kind of falls apart. Let's just, I just try to get a picture in my mind here. We're talking about a sort of plasma. And when you say control, you're using magnets. As, as, that's kind of how I understand it. Is that is that right? And is that what they were doing there? Or, or have I sort of jumped a step? So you're absolutely right. What we're creating here is something called a plasma. And plasmas are the four states of matter after solids, liquids, and gases, but they've got much worse PR than the other ones. So people don't really know about them, but you will have seen one. It's what the sun is made out of. It's what lightning is made out of. If you've ever seen those plasma globes, that's a plasma as well. And the important thing about plasmas is that what you get when you put enough energy into something that the electrons get stripped off of the atoms and the nuclei and the electrons are kind of just all in it together in a big kind of soup, doing a kind of frenetic dance where they're constantly pushing and pulling on each other. And there's a reason why plasmas are so critical to fusion. Plasmas have these properties that mean that you get around this problem of missing the collisions. A plasma, to be a good fusion reactor as well, needs three things. It needs a high temperature, it needs to be quite dense, so everything's packed together, and it needs to be able to keep the particles confined. And the reason why that matters so much is that if you have a very high temperature, what does that actually mean in practice? It means that the particles have a lot of energy and they're constantly slamming into each other. And high density means that the particles are packed close together, so they're doing lots of collisions in every second. So it's a bit like your, your plasma, in a way, is a bit like mixing up a soup, so lots of particles all the time rather than firing bullets from a gun. Exactly. And it's a soup where things are crashing into each other the whole time. And then the, the third kind of ingredient, there's these three kind of magic ingredients. The third ingredient is that you manage to confine those particles. Because you've got all these particles with loads of energy, uh, it's so easy for them to escape. And you know what? We're talking about something here that could be 150 million degrees. So you can't just put it in a Tupperware box, right? You, there's, there's no material on Earth that is going to withstand that. So somehow you need to contain that stuff and keep it hot. That's a big engineering issue. So go, going back to our, our kind of race, so you've got Nazis, you've got Imperial College. Just sort of tell us the sort of how that formed that race and what happened. Who, who, who built what when and was there an outcome? By the end of the 1940s, lots of places around the world. So I think in, in 1949, there was a soldier in the USSR who'd had a similar idea as well. And then this thing exploded globally in 1951 because Argentina 
made a shocking announcement to the world. They said that they had controlled tiny artificial suns on Earth. And they didn't release any scientific details, which is always a big red flag. But they claimed that they had cracked nuclear fusion. And that is when, now they hadn't, it was complete nonsense. But that was when the floodgates opened because it inspired countries and scientists all around the world to try. And that's when the very serious bigger machines started being built. So I, th I think just to give some context to this kind of race, it's, it's worth saying a, a little bit more about how people were thinking about it at the time. And something really important happened in 1957 when a plasma physicist, so someone who studies this stuff, made a beautiful argument about why doing fusion with plasmas would work on paper, pen and paper physics, the kind of thing that's very beautiful to look at. And essentially, those three things that I mentioned, he showed that if you get those three things right, then you will get more energy out than you put in. And that's kind of a revelation. He could just show that with pen and paper. And what's amazing is that like a DJ mixing a track, but keeping the overall sound volume the same, you can switch between these three things. And so in the sun, what you have is something that's very well confined by gravity, is a bit less hot, but is very, very dense. And what this meant for people trying to build a star on Earth is that they could go in lots of different directions. They could try and make something that was really dense. They could try and make something that was really hot. And they could try and make something that was really well confined. And they all took different approaches. And, and the two kind of camps that emerged out of this are magnetic confinement fusion and inertial confinement fusion. Those words are probably sound a bit kind of technical and, and don't give much away. But in the magnetic case, essentially they said, plasmas are made of charged particles. Charged particles like to follow magnetic lines. So what we'll do is we'll create a magnetic trap, an invisible force field that will keep the plasma confined. And then in the inertial case, they said, ha, huh, well, you know, the important thing is that it's confined and it's at very high density. So we'll have a bit less temperature, but we don't need to confine it for very long because nuclear reactions happen so quickly. So if we can just create those conditions for a tiny fraction of a second, that will be long enough for nuclear reactions to happen. And we'll just keep doing that a bit like a, a petrol engine. And it was Edward Teller based at Livermore, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, who really, starting from the 50s, started pursuing this inertial confinement fusion, which is the one with the giant lasers. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, there's an overlap, isn't there, between fission and fusion and those when we talk about Teller and the bombs in a mountain idea. Just can you tell us who was Edward Teller and what was... Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, Edward Teller and his family had fleed from Hungary during the Second World War and had ended up in, in the US. And he was a brilliant, brilliant scientist. He was a key part of the Manhattan Project. He was someone who had really helped deliver the hydrogen bomb. So this is a fusion bomb. It actually uses fission. It has to use fission as well. It uses fission and fusion. And um, happily, it's, it's never been used in war. And it's much more devastating than the atomic bomb. Now, it was in 1952 that he demonstrated that. And Teller said that as soon as he had done that, every politician and bureaucrat descended upon him saying, now you must solve the problem of fusion energy. And Teller looked around at what was going on in magnetic confinement fusion, which was a bit more open at that time. And he kind of said, look, that's really complicated. You have to solve some seriously hard physics. Why don't we do it a bit like we do it in weapons? And, you know, maybe we can just drop some bombs into a mountain and generate energy. <laughs> I know it sounds absolutely <laughs> crazy, but let me tell you that he wasn't the only person thinking this. 
In the USSR, they had a, a project called Controlled Nuclear Explosions for the Soviet Economy or something like that. In the US, it was called Operation Plowshare. And it was all about, can we use this huge new power? And they were thinking about creating new harbors by blowing up parts of the ocean. And you know, so all of the ideas were completely bonkers, even if they might have actually worked in some ways. But there was a young scientist called John Knuckles, and you know, Teller basically told him, hey, could you go and drop some, you know, what would happen if you dropped these fusion bombs into a mountainside? Could we use it to power a power station or, or kind of power a city? Knuckles kind of did the calculations and decided that that would create a big radioactive mess and no one needed that mm-hmm. next to their city. But he did realise that if you shrank the whole thing down to a tiny pop instead of a huge bang, then it did make sense. So he started working on this idea of having a tiny, tiny ball of fuel and just doing these tiny pops that were very, very safe and using that as the basis of inertial confinement fusion. So that's when we get lasers. So basically firing very, very powerful lasers is what happens now at Deuterium. Yeah, that's right. So actually when Knuckles was dreaming this up, the laser didn't even exist yet. What he needed was a way of getting a lot of energy in a very small space in a very small amount of time. So when Theodore Maiman announced the creation of the first laser in 1960, Knuckles was straight away writing a memo to the director saying, hey, you know what? Laser takes it takes energy, it transmits it over space, and you can make a laser pulsed so that you can take a lot of energy and put it in a very small space with a lens in a very small amount of time in a pulse and thereby create those conditions that you need to get those fusion reactions ignited. Just tell us how powerful those lasers are sort of. You know, when we talk about laser, what are we talking about in terms of how can we how can we visualize that? The successor of this idea exists today over in California, and it is the world's biggest laser. And if you looked at its power rating, it's greater than the entire US national grid. So this is a pretty serious laser. Now, the, the reason why it can be greater than the entire national grid is it's only on for a tiny fraction of a second. And the amount of energy that it delivers to these tiny, tiny targets is about two megajoules. So that's two million joules. It's not actually that much energy in the grand scheme of things, but the point is that it's delivered over tens of nanoseconds and over an area that's millionths of a meter squared. We'll be back after this short break. Gone Medieval is History Hits podcast dedicated to the greatest millennium in human history. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, a Viking Age bioarchaeologist and author. And I'm Matt Lewis, a medievalist and writer. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll talk Vikings, Normans, Popes, rebellions and so much more. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, okay, let, let's just a bit of a recap here. So you've got laser laser fusion, which is you still need a heck of a lot of energy and still we still don't have energy out for as much energy as we put no, in. No, but we've got pretty close, let me tell you. Like one in, one out? Are we that sort of close? So we're aiming for one, one in, one out is kind of scientific demonstration of what scientists called net energy gain, as in, you know, you, you got as much energy out as you put in. Now, in August of 2021, this experiment in the US at the same lab that Knuckles was working at managed to get to 70%. So that is pretty close. Um, and I know it sounds like it's still a way off, but it's 25 times greater than what they achieved in 2018. And in the last 10 years, um, it's gone up by a factor of a thousand. So um, the, the improvements they're making are kind of, you know, a factor of two or a factor of six each time. So they're really very close to getting over that 100% threshold. And that's going to be mega, mega news when it happens. Because we haven't cracked it yet, it's one of those technologies that people get very, very excited about and lots of scientists study. It also leads to lots of, I suppose, myths and and bad science as well. Um, Very famously in 1989, I remember there was the cold fusion fiasco where a couple of scientists said, oh, we've cracked fusion. And guess what? You don't even need any heat or energy to make it work. And it was called cold fusion. And the, the scientific community embraced it for a bit, I think, and they hold, held a conference and then everyone realised that it was bollocks, I think is the technical term. It's, a, it's an interesting, it's a good sort of cautionary tale of, of how science works and bad science. Perhaps you could just briefly just sketch it out for us. Yeah. So I'd say that the history of fusion is littered with both triumph and humiliation. Um, And I think that's kind of natural because the prize is so great and the technology is so complicated that it naturally attracts some level of quackery. People kind of want to believe that there's some kind of easy way of doing it that doesn't involve all this really hard plasma physics. It's a bit like the search for search for extraterrestrial life. You know, everyone's just a little bit too quick to claim they found it. And institutions are a little bit too quick to publish headlines because they know that it's going to, you know, everyone's going to get excited exactly. about it. But you know what? We, we actually have a pretty good idea of what achieving fusion means. So I think if you stick to those big laboratories like the National Ignition Facility in, in California, like the ITER program in the south of France, then, you know, I take those people who've been doing this for decades and making real progress along the way, I take that pretty seriously. If it's a couple of people claiming that they've done it in their back garden, it deserves a lot more scrutiny. And that's what happened with Ponson Fleischmann in 1989. 
I'm looking at a couple of magazine articles. This is it. Um, re- extraordinary um, claims require extraordinary evidence, as they say. And I'm looking at Time, Newsweek, and Business Week from the Time. Fusion or illusion? And it's this whole. Everyone got very excited about cold fusion. What did they? They. I, I can't even. Just what was the experiment? What had they done? They'd sort of done it in a test tube, and of course, it turned out to be nonsense. But but presumably, they must have known it was nonsense, didn't they? Well. Dallas, they were chemists. (laughs) So we have to make some exception. Fair enough. So what happened was that they were working on reactions that happen in the lattice of another material. So they were working with with palladium. And basically they were putting these heavy bits of hydrogen into the palladium lattice as a kind of almost having it act as a catalyst. And what they thought was happening was that it was changing how easy it was for those fusion reactions to take place. And do you know what? Catalysts are a thing. They exist. And this was perhaps, you know, an area unknown to physicists, these kind of catalyzed by palladium reactions. So people kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt initially and kind of said, well, actually, maybe that could change how easy it is for fusion to take place. Maybe the deuterium uh, nuclei can get really, really close in this palladium lattice uh, in this test tube, right? But what should have been many red flags were kind of ignored. And the first was that instead of submitting their results to a scientific journal to get the scrutiny of their peers, instead of doing that, they called a press conference at their university and got the TV cameras in and things. They seemed very, very confident. But the problem is that they hadn't even looked for the telltale signs of one of these nuclear reactions, which is a type of neutral particle called a neutron. And if you've got a nuclear fusion reaction, you'll have neutrons. And and to be honest, the fastest and most compelling evidence that they were just plain wrong was the fact that they weren't dead. Because (laughs) if they produced the amount of neutrons that they thought they were from the number of fusion reactions they thought they had, they would have probably killed themselves with the amount of energy coming off of it. The other big joke about fusion, of course, you know, we've built all these facilities. And the joke is always fusion is 20, 30 years away, wherever you are in time. How far away before we crack it, please? It's not a thing where you just wait for a, a number of years and it just happens, right? This is in our hands. It's a decision. How much do we want to invest in this? How much do we care as a society? Are we not investing enough? So, uh, you know, it depends what you think. Worldwide, the investment in fusion is, you know, probably in the low billions a year. Could we not do a Manhattan Project style, let's just chuck everything at it for a couple of years and, and, and go Manhattan style and then and then get this sorted? And then we can not, we don't have to worry about energy anymore. We don't have to worry about fossil fuels. We don't even have to worry about renewables. We can just, we can go fusion all the way. Look, I think every person out there who's trying to build a star on Earth would love it if that happened. And it is true that the investment hasn't really been what you'd expect to make this happen. Well, that's my question. Is it just a question of money? If we put more money on it, can we get it to work? It's a question of money. It's a question of people, which turns out to be a question of money as well. And yeah, I think as the great Soviet fusion physicist, Artsimovich, I'm mangling that name, but as he said, fusion will be ready when society wants it. And, you know, I think if you look across the world, the investment in it has been at level where we don't really want it yet. If I was the world's science minister and I was thinking about it from the point of view of humanity, would I put more eggs in this basket? You bet I would. I would love to see this happen. And I think the prize is just totally worth having it.
hopefully the uh, the future world government leader is, is listening to me. Well, as the future world government leader myself, I now hear, I hereby appoint you as science minister. Arthur, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. I absolutely love talking about this. It's one of those subjects that there's so much meaty stuff in it. Lovely, amazing science, wonderful history possibilities problems solved it's really it's a really fantastic subject and and, I, and you, you know, know what it's, it, it's the most exciting time for it that there's been in decades literally that the breakthroughs in the last couple of years are so exciting so can't wait to see what happens watch this space and, and when we crack it we'll, we'll get you on again arthur thanks very much indeed thank you for having me thanks for listening we recorded the chat that you have just heard in october 2022 and then in December 2022, came a really exciting breakthrough. The Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory announced that they had achieved net energy gain, the point where more energy comes out of the reaction than is put in. Very, very exciting. So we got Arthur back to update us. Good morning, Arthur. Hello. It's the 13th of December, 2022. We had some, well, there was a, one of those tantalising announcements. Oh, we're going to have a tantalising announcement on social media yesterday from the Department of Energy in the United States at the Lawrence Livermore Lab, the ignition facility that we talked about. Tell us what they told us. So they reported on the results of an experiment that happened last Monday where they wellied, I think is the technical term, yeah. 2.05 megajoules of energy into a target that contains some fusion fuel. Uh, but the really exciting thing is what came out. So they got 3.2 megajoules of energy out. So that is more energy out than was put in. In fact, it's one and a half times the energy out than was put in. And this is a moment of history. No one in the history of fusion energy has ever managed to do this before in a controlled laboratory experiment. And it changes everything. So how much how much energy went in? point. It's 2.1 megajoules. Okay, two point, for, the, for the uninitiated, what does 2.1 megajoules look like? How much energy is that in terms of kettles? I mean, what... what? It, it's not actually very much energy. So it's about the energy you need to, to boil a couple of kettles worth of water. So it, it's really not very much energy. And it was never meant to be either because this is a single shot on a single experiment. And the important thing is that the energy that came out, which is about three kettles worth, is more than the energy that went in. That's well, okay. Why should we be excited by that? So, uh, th there are two reasons why this is exciting. One is just the phenomenal science that has got us to this point. Insane levels of accuracy are required. A 0.1% error in the laser energy at the start of this laser pulse can degrade the fusion conditions by as much as 50%. You have to get to 10 times hotter than the centre of the sun, pressures 300 billion times those we normally experience on Earth. So just the science involved and the precision are, are just wondrous in themselves, even if we never use this. But for the rest of society, for the rest of humanity, the thing that's really exciting here is that this is a proof of concept that we can control the power source of stars here on Earth to produce energy. Scientists and big institutions love big and big grand announcements. Oh, we found life in the upper atmosphere of Venus or whatever it is. And then it always, everyone has to kind of backpedal a little bit after that. And everyone goes, well, actually, we're not quite there yet. Two kettles in, three kettles out isn't going to solve the world's energy problems. We're going to need something 
bigger than that, aren't we, to make it scalable? I mean, that that's the real issue. I think it's worth having the, the context in mind here that you know this facility was really built just to demonstrate more energy out than in. It was never meant to be a prototype power plant. And Dallas, imagine if you'd gone to the US government and said, hey, I want to build a prototype power plant <laughs> on a technology. We don't even know if it works. <laughs> you need to show the proof of concept works first. And that is the point we've reached. It's pretty exciting. Okay, so in my excitement levels when I talk to my mum later... Be excited because just for the sheer science of it, it's exciting. You know, we've done something that we've been talking about. We've recreated stars here on Earth for the first time and actually proved the science has worked. Now we have to make it scalable somehow. And that's that's, prob- that's probably as tricky as the science. It's probably harder than the science. <laughs> I, do you know what? I'm not sure it is because we've got a clear path. We know it can work and it's just about finessing it now. So it's a bit like, you know, imagine the first motor engine. It, it was polluting. It was, you know, frankly crap. It made terrible noises, shut off all the time. But look at where we are with engines today. They're incredibly fuel efficient compared to what they are. Incredibly reliable. But, the you know, it, there was a clear path of kind of research and development. So we we kind of know what we need to do now and we know that it can work and that removes a lot of the uncertainty so i think one of the biggest effects of this momentous result will be to crowd in interest investment and innovation and set out a clear path for how we could develop this into a power source if we choose to do that brilliant Arthur, thank you so much for coming on to, to explain i'm going to put all my money in uh, lasers now that's what i'm going to do i'm going to, I'm going to buy shares in lasers big lasers who kettles. doesn't love a big laser we love a big laser I, i'm just imagining the kind of landscape of uh, you know wind farms but also giant lasers firing lasers at small protons <laughs> thank you arthur thanks for coming on it's a pleasure 